when people come to my restaurant, what I try and do, besides growing the best carrots and besides cooking them with the best technique, is provide a story. Because when you provide a story, you generally connect people to food in, in a way that they otherwise wouldn't taste certain ingredients. And I think it supersedes what I can do as a chef, even on my best nights. I think I'm a, I think I'm a very good chef. It's not, I'm not false modesty, I think I'm a fine chef. But I, I also think there's this human experience surrounding it, this connection to it that uh, makes it more delicious. Dan Barber is a celebrated chef, but his passionate ethics and intellect have made him much more than that. He's out to restore food to its rightful place vis-a-vis our bodies, our ecologies, and our economies. And he would do this by resurrecting our natural insistence on flavor. Dan Barber brings his theories to life at two restaurants rooted in a working farm and educational center in the verdant Picantico Hills of New York, the Stone Barn Center. Food and Wine has called the Blue Hill Restaurant at Stone Barns one of the world's top ten life-changing restaurants. Pleasure is Dan Barber's way into what he calls the most exciting social movement of our time. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Dan Barber has just published a terrific book, his first called The Third Plate, Field Notes on the Future of Food. I interviewed him as part of a 2010 civic festival in Indianapolis on the arts, humanities, and religion. The Spirit and Place Festival, as it's named, took food as its topic that year. Our conversation was one of the opening events hosted at a synagogue, Congregation Beth El Zedek. Dan Barber's own Jewish identity rarely finds mention in his prolific writing from Gourmet to the New York Times. But others often turn to transcendent language to describe the experience of his cooking. A great Spanish chef, Ferran Adria, for example, wrote this for Time magazine of Dan Barber. When he offers you an appetizer composed of simple vegetables, dewy with liquid salt, he is saying something to you. He converses with one of the things that I love in gastronomy, the essence of the produce. These are culinary preparations that retain the soul of the food. You know, Dan, we came up with this title for tonight at some point, Mindful Eating. But really... uh, what we want to talk about here is this conjunction of spirit, place, and food. And so I'd like to start um, by hearing a little bit about the beginnings of your life, because I, I have understood that there was a connection between spirit and place and food. I was bar mitzvahed. <laughs> yes. I had a beautiful luncheon after the bar mitzvah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, I, 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 I grew up in New York City, but I, I spent a lot of time on uh, my grandmother's farm in the Berkshires. Uh, she wasn't a farmer, and she wasn't a cook. She was a great eater. Um, uh, and she, well, you, you know, she, was, she was also a socialite, a socialite, not social heavy. I don't know. She, she was the chairman of the Berkshire Theater Festival. Uh, the theory I have is that she just loved inviting people to the, this home in, at Blue Hill Farm on Blue Hill Road in Great Barrington. And she wanted cows uh, grazing, and she wanted things growing. And, and as people you know, munched on cocktails and whatever, she, she talked about preserving this, this open space. I think she felt very deeply about it. And, and you know, if there's anything that, that was, I was marinating in at the time, it was a sort of responsibility um, by way of pleasure. <laughs> 
So were you growing up in New York City? Yeah. When you yeah. weren't spending the summers at the yeah, farm? Yeah, right, right. So were you getting different messages about food that you then had to bring together and balance and play off of that as you moved towards your That's a really great a question. I've never been asked that. And I, so I guess the thing that comes to mind is that my, well, my mother passed away when I was very young and my father tried to cook and it was not great, it was really bad cook. And so, <laughs> and, and, and one anecdote that comes to mind is just the, the he used to cook scrambled eggs uh, enough that I, like my memory of my child is often having these like hard, sort of burnt, like really <laughs> overcooked eggs. And um, what's interesting is that like, I didn't know they were hard, burnt, overcooked eggs until I was sick uh, with, with uh, tonsillitis in, when I was, I think I was 15, and my aunt, who is an expert cook, lovingly prepared food for me, uh, and she prepared scrambled eggs whipped over a double boiler with this French butter that she had gotten at this market, and, and this stuff just slid down my throat. <laughs> and, and I was like, God, this, this is, first of all, this is food. And this is real, this is real scrambled eggs, this is food, this is, this is love. Now, you would say, okay, so I dismissed my father, but actually I think it took, you know, my father's eggs to make me appreciate <laughs> my ancestors. Yeah. Um, the idea that I grew up, I mean, I was like, I grew up in the 1960s uh, when... Uh, my parents had just discovered, and as all their friends had discovered, that food could come from boxes and cans, and this was progress. But if we had an idea about cooking and about chefs, it was about uh, working magic with ingredients. It was about a metamorphosis, right? Where you took just enough of this and just enough of that, and you came up with this dish that transformed all the ingredients into something completely other. And when I read about how you cook and approach food, it is... It's very different. It's a completely different philosophy and approach. Well, those were the dark ages of yeah. cooking, I think. So I, this goes to the heart of this question that I deal with sort of every day. Is, is One of my restaurants is on a farm. So when there's a carrot in front of me and I've followed the seed all the way through the composting and the weeding and the, and the, the brilliance of the growth, you know, I mean, it really comes down to like you're face to face with the farmers that raised a lamb that you're roasting or you're face to face with that farmer that raised the carrot. And it's like, it's kind of crazy to think that I would be doing something that would be more interesting or more even artistic uh, or more brilliant than something that they have done throughout this process. So in that sense, very humbling. And I think a look at the future of, of better food. And I think the, what you unfortunately grew up infused with was this time where we're hopefully just coming out of this disconnection with where your ingredients are coming from and how they were produced. So there's something so liberating and wonderful about how you talk about um, sustainability and, and becoming more ethical with our food. And this also comes through with, in Michael Pollan's writing and in Barbara Kingsolver's writing. Two, two writers it, um, very right. influenced and, by, yeah. And this wonderful, and I don't, know, I don't know why it's surprising, but this surprising link between doing the right thing, doing the ethical thing is also the pleasurable thing. And that sustainability is also about resurrecting flavor. Yeah. And the most, the pleasurable thing and the most delicious. So that they're, they're all run along parallel lines. I mean, that's the serendipity of what I do, which is that, you know, my, my shiv is like, I want to cook good food. And, and, and it's in the pursuit of great flavor. It just so happens that 
you're attached to great ecology by definition. I mean, it's, it's just one of those things that's so axiomatic, you forget, we forget, and I think it's part because of what you mentioned. You, we went through this period, especially in the United States, where we were so removed from how food was grown and where it was coming from and who was growing it that we forget just the most obvious thing is that, that a delicious carrot, a delicious slice of lamb has attached to it these decisions in the pasture and the field that are, uh, that are both thoughtful and, and intensely ethical as well as ecological, that you can't have an unethically raised lamb, uh, an unthoughtfully raised carrot, and have a delicious uh, lamb and carrot dish. It's, it's impossible. Even, even the greatest chefs couldn't do that. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a public conversation with Dan Barber. He's a celebrated chef and a leader in the farm-to-table movement. So um, I just want to bring this close to the ground for just a minute. So, for example, this carrot. Yeah. How would you treat that carrot differently? You're you're also saying it's going to taste different now. Yeah. Maybe the carrot you've grown is going to taste different because yeah. you've been part of its life from the very beginning. Right. So let's talk about it on a physiological level. The physiological level is, uh, you know, a carrot that's grown in the right way, whether it's on our farm or, or generally speaking, a local carrot, because locality has a lot to do with this in the sense that, that local carrots are generally sold at a local farmer's market. And a local farmer's market is generally uh, supported from the growing part of it by small farmers. And, and smaller farmers tend to... Uh, raise a diversity of vegetables, a diversity of carrots, different seeds of carrots, uh, a, a carrot that's grown in a monoculture, a carrot that's grown one variety of carrot for 500 acres, tend to be cheaper carrots. They tend to be, from the, from the farmer's standpoint, a bit more efficient in the sense that you can raise this one carrot and uh, uh, have a lot of control, command and control. Uh, you tend to have to uh, do all sorts of amendments uh, that uh, are generally chemically intensive to make a carrot grow in a monoculture over that many acres. So, this, so, so from a physiological definition, they have two strikingly different carrots. And of course, if you follow those, the, the story of those two carrots, one that's grown in a monoculture and one that's grown in a locally diverse system uh, with, with different seeds of carrots, you generally tell a story of how the world is used, two different ways of using the world. But then there's this other part of why the carrot tastes so good, and that, that can tell a story about the carrot. Because what is great taste? I mean, when I tasted that egg, you know, part of it was was my aunt's cooking technique, but part of it was the the love and the support and the fact that I was feeling ill and this whole understanding of of what surrounds eating. I mean, what what is a great meal? What's your best meal? Well, a lot of people say the best meal is when they were on vacation in Europe or when they were with their grandmother, but because the grandmother could cook the best or because the French could cook the the, the greatest uh, you know beef they've ever had. But it, but actually. Both those examples lead to your state of mind. You, you were happiest when you were with your grandmother and you felt, you felt a certain way that you could taste flavors that you otherwise wouldn't taste. So when, when people come to my restaurant, what I try and do besides growing the best carrots and besides mm-hmm. cooking them with the best technique is provide a story. Because when you provide a story, you generally connect people to food in, in a way that they otherwise wouldn't taste certain ingredients. And I think it supersedes 
what I can do as a chef, even on my best nights. I think I'm a, fi- I think I'm a very good chef. It's not, I'm not false modesty. I think I'm a fine chef. Mm-hmm. But I think I've, I've, my, my thing has become much more exaggerated because of the use of ingredients, which physiologically, I, I, I believe there's a, there's a physiological explanation that uh, makes them better tasting. But I, I also think there's this human experience surrounding it, this connection to it that uh, makes it more delicious. You know, there's a great line Michael Pollan has that um, when it comes to food until very recent generations, um, most of our food choices were came out of our culture, and that when it comes to food, culture is just a fancy word for your mother. Yeah, right. No, it's, it's a great way of saying that's right. That's right. And, you know, and, and, and but that he, that's been lost. That's right. Well, he also, Michael, uh, also often quotes this, this term called biophilia, which is this uh, connect, this sort of natural, innate connection that we need to feel towards nature. And he, he, he extends that to a need on you know, part hardwired of us to want to know where our food is coming from. Mm. The fact that we've been become so disassociated with food just begs this larger point that we need to taste these these tastes that I'm talking about. We need to know who's growing our food, where it's coming from, how it's coming. Some story, some real, not a false narrative, a real story about that food. And 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 when you can provide that, I think you end up providing uh, a better eating experience. And I think to the extent that you've become an activist, it's, it's in this uh, way of linking storytelling to sustainability. You, you become an activist as a storyteller. I mean, um, okay, so I'll tell a story that came to mind as I was reading you, that my only transcendent food memory of my childhood, this is sad, but the only transcendent food memory I have is just in a few summer months, we would go to this ramshackle store that was on Main Street, which I suppose now we might call a farmer's market because mm. it was food that came from farms, which was totally disdained most of the time. Mm. But the tomatoes there, they were these, I mean, you're all, we remember those tomatoes, right? First of all, they were enormous. And one of those tomatoes on a plate was transcendent. Yeah, it right. was a meal. It was beautiful. And it even took us at, beyond this idea that progress is what we ate most of the time. So a lot of us remembering those tomatoes and then being emboldened by people like you have planted our own tomatoes, huh. right? I did it. And they don't taste like that. And I think you also know things that, it, that, that I want you to tell us about. I mean, um, I mean, you've also written that everyone growing their own vegetables is also not the answer. Yeah to relinking these things that may be very natural. Yeah. I'm sorry that tomato did not. So what, so what happened? Was it you, you do you feel well, like I you mean, made I a mistake? Well, I mean, I think we don't know what you're, what oh. you talk about is all the things that, yeah. all the things that go into a beautiful tomato. It's not just a matter of me yeah. digging a little dirt right. in my backyard. Right. It's unfortunate because a lot of the seeds of the, the tomatoes that were around in the 60s and 70s have been have been lost to varieties that that even when you buy seeds at a at a at a store that's selling them or, or through the internet are seeds that are generally for even in a home garden are generally for greater harvest. So uh, we so, would be so, buying the same seeds that would. You're not buying, yeah. In a large, most cases, yeah, farm. yeah. You have to go uh-huh. back a bit further to get uh, low production uh, tomatoes to because because the greater the production of tomato on the vine, the less flavor because you're dispersing the flavor, the energy from the plant into more tomatoes than you otherwise would. So so in other words, you know, this is a, this is because customers of seeds want a lot of tomatoes in their gardens, and what they get is a good yield, and what they end up suffering from is, is a lack of flavor, which is too bad. So when I had Barbara Kingsolver on the show, I mean, Barbara Kingsolver wrote this book about spending a year where they ate 
almost only what they could grow. They basically ate what they could grow themselves. And a lot of people's reaction to that was great, but I live in Brooklyn, yeah. or I live in Minnesota. Yeah. And you actually have a farm in a part of the world with four seasons. Yeah. But I also think it's a kind of a relief that you say that you also like to have citrus fruit on your plate and that you do avail yourself of the wonderful things that technology makes possible, yeah. of modern distribution systems, if you will. I think what's yeah, I said different that to is Barbara, and she wasn't like that psyched about it. And really? I, yeah, a little bit, and like, and and so I become, you know, and so I'm not a purist at all. Like, I really, right. I I love citrus. That's a that's like my weakness. So so you can't grow citrus. What I think is yeah. different, what you're doing this new, is you're calling it a luxury, oh, right? Yes. I mean, right. you're reminding okay. us that it's not natural to be able to have citrus fruit in New York right. in uh, January. Right. And that's that. I mean, that is something we forgot. We have forgotten. Right, and if you treat it as a luxury, I think you enjoy it more, mm -hmm. uh, and and I think you you put it in the sphere that it belongs, which is which is something that's delicious and a part of the gloriousness of you know the, the same distribution chain that makes local food so expensive is on the flip side of it the, the distribution chain that gives us pineapples and citrus fruit in the middle of the of the winter and I don't think there's anything wrong with that I, I think it's one of the blessed things it's the question of proportion and, and to what extent are you are you taking you know that as as your diet year-round and what percentage are you are you not looking at local agriculture to actually feed you in the winter and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that we're four seasons because one of the things I, I really take great pride in for the Stone Barn Center farm is that they're just brilliant at, at grow, providing calories, delicious calories, in the middle of the winter. And some of the most delicious food is in the winter. I'm just going to give you a quick example because I think it's, it's, it's critical. We could be, in these cold climates, of which we're sitting now in the northeast where I am, growing the most unbelievable, for example, root vegetables and vegetables like kale and spinach and, uh, and other uh, Brussels sprouts that actually thrive in the intensity of the cold. So what, what the Stone Barn Center is heading more in the direction of, driven by flavor, by the way. This is not driven by some kind of uh, ethical uh, uh, underpinning, and it's not a moral issue. This is just simply because the best root vegetables have to go through intense freezes to get the sugar, to get the root vegetables that all of us adore, the beets and the parsnips and the celery root, uh, the carrots for sure, these need to be stressed under several hard freezes. And in fact, if stayed in the ground in the right soil with the right seeds, uh, end up becoming carrots that far, far exceed in flavor, in sugar and in flavor, anything that's grown in a monoculture in those warmer climates. Here's the quick example. We proved this, finally. Uh, we grew a variety of carrots called mokum carrots uh, in the middle of February. Uh, we picked them out of the ground. Jack Algier is the Stone Barn Center farmer, uh, Four Seasons farmer. He picked them out, and we, we brought them in the kitchen, and we took a bricks test, a sugar test. We squeezed a little bit of carrot juice on a refractometer, which measures part per billion of sugar, and it registered for this mokum carrot 13.8 on the refractometer. Now, for all of you, you should be gasping. 13.8. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. I didn't We're gasp either. I had no idea what that meant. It, may, it means, I've since learned, that 13.8% of this small ca carrot uh, was sugar, pure sugar. Uh, when I looked up a mokum carrot on the internet to find out what uh, an average uh, bricks number would be, the highest I got was 12. So it was literally off the charts. Now, we just for curiosity's sake took a bricks measuring of a uh, carrot that we use for stocks in the restaurant. It's an organic carrot. 
the kind of carrot you, you'd find in like a Whole Foods. Uh, so it's a, it's a high quality organic carrot. What did it measure on the bricks? 0, 0.0. Oh my gosh. Right? Undetectable with sugar. Now, why? Does, so this just absolutely wigged me out. I mean, I, you know, I, I knew there'd be a difference because I can taste the difference. But did I know that it was going to be so dramatic? And so I finally got to a plant physiologist that I, 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 I sort of fell in love with. He's a part-time poet. And what he said to me was very poetic and, and I think right to the point. He said, the carrot is converting its starches to sugars because in those hard freezes, it doesn't want ice crystallization. Because it gets ice crystallization, it dies. So, and then what he ended with is that what you're tasting is sweetness, but what the plant, what the root vegetable is telling you is that it doesn't want to die. Hmm. And, and what we have in these cold climates for certain vegetables, and I think they can provide us quite deliciously and quite healthfully for the cold season, is something that California and Texas and Arizona and Oaxaca and Florida and all the rest cannot provide. Mm. That's working within, within a natural system for the betterment of, of food. Mm. Mm. By the way, there's, there's increasing a direct connection between BRICS levels and, and uh, nutrient density, which is really interesting when you think about right. it. I mean, it makes sense to us. I mean, you just think about it just sort of axiomatically. Of course, you know, the best flavored food would also be the healthiest and the most nutrient dense. But there's actually studies now that are showing that the highest concentration of, of nutrient density is within is yeah. it can be covered in that higher bricks, which goes back to Michael Pollan's point is that not long ago, we were hunter-gatherers trying to figure out what was good for us and for our children and healthy. And if we're, we're hardwired to go for that sugar and that flavor, we're also going for the best nutrient density. And as it turns out, the best ecological decisions for, for a farm. Right. I don't know. I think somewhere in there you said this is not about ethics, but I, I mean, we're talking about something that's life-giving, that's beautiful, that's pleasurable, that has ethical value. If, I become, ethical a, value. if I become a rabbi, this will become about ethics. <laughs> <laughs> but those things have ethical value in, yeah, in Jewish right. tradition. It, yeah, true. Look, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm of just the mind that I, I feel very fortunate that I believe in something that from A to Z is rooted in hedonism. It's really a nice, it's, it's a nice thing to be an advocate of, you know? It's like even religion, I mean, especially religion, actually, and I, this is, I shouldn't be saying this on the Bema, but especially religion, you know, you, 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 to get to fulfillment, uh, to get to this exalted state, it's often requested of you to give up something, to sacrifice. That's, that's uh, part of most religions. When you are greedy for the best food, you are by definition being greedy for the kind of world, the way the world is used, the kind of world that you want used in the proper way. That's, that's the true definition of sustainability and why I think this movement that I stated so confidently as the most exciting social movement in America today has such legs. People always ask me, haven't you seen the height of this? Isn't this, you know, the crazy, isn't, the, what, you know, isn't this a fad? And they're so wrong. They're so wrong because this is only because once people taste the carrot with 13.8% bricks, you're not gonna settle for the 0.0. You're willing to pay for and invest in the kind of agriculture that will give you the flavor and the nutrient values that you want, whether you're an environmentalist or not. So I, I, I'm a, like a buying opportunity for this. Well, moment. yeah, but you know, there is labor that goes into it. It's just that yeah. you don't, it, it, it doesn't feel as ascetic. I mean, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. Yeah, which is nice, right? Yeah, I, I, I actually brought this. I, 
we did a show with the Dalai Lama and three religious leaders on happiness. Okay, yeah. so, but I want to read yeah. you this. Yeah. I, was getting, I was preparing for you, and somebody wrote to us, one of our listeners from Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts, and this was what she said, responding to that happiness discussion. She said, I found happiness in preparing food. Hmm. No other activity grounds me more fully and alights my senses and keeps me in the now. Mincing and dicing soothe me. Reading cookbooks excites me. <laughs> this is my kind of woman. This is your kind of woman. Yeah. But there, there's, it, there's a, you could call it, a, it's a discipline and it can feel like a spiritual discipline, I think, because, precisely because, as you say, there's that pleasure, there's that good at the end of it. Yeah, I, yeah, but but, Maybe we're but you're saying that she far. would feel. But no, 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 no. I love the quote. But yeah. are you saying you're saying that she would feel this whether or not she was supporting all the things that I'm talking about? No, I'm saying that the work you said that this is greed oh, that okay, you're okay. Ju- that it's just yeah. about pleasure. But there's work that goes into creating that pleasure. But right. It's a labor of love. Right, right. I, I, absolutely. I mean, it reminds me of, of Yom Kippur and that you, you, the work you go through during the day of fasting ends up whatever you get when you break the fast. It tastes a lot better than it would if you were eating right uh, uh, during right. the three meals a day. So, so yes, there's attached to this is that you have to cook. And for those people who look at cooking as drudgery or look at cooking as hard labor and, and a total uh, uh, unenjoyment, you know, it, this is a problem. <laughs> Because, because at the root of all of this, actually, and Michael Pollan has said this too, and I, I, I really subscribe to it, is like, it's all about cooking. It's like people always say, well, what can you do for this movement if, if I live in you know, an extreme northern climate and I really can't do anything about it? You know, what, what can one average person do who has all the constraints of either their ecological conditions or their work conditions? And the answer is you cook. Because when you cook, you're opting out of the kind of food chain that's cooking for you. And when, the food, when a food chain is cooking for you, it's usually processed. It's usually of lesser grade ingredients, which means that it's usually degrading the environment, which means that usually, because it has less flavor, usually has less flavonoids, which means it has, has less health benefits. So all of those things are attached to when you're not cooking. When you are cooking, you're engaging in some type of direct communication with a fresh ingredient that, that's not heavily processed. And if you can get that locally, you've done tremendous amounts to, to give your contribution to the betterment of the world, besides a more pleasurable dinner. You can listen again and share this conversation with Dan Barber through our website, onbeing.org. There you can also watch the complete unedited video of my fun and edifying conversation with him. Dan Barber on the perception that his kind of cooking and eating remains an elite experience. Also, the exciting link he sees on the horizon between maximum flavor and life-giving nutrition, even for treating cancer. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with Dan Barber, an award-winning chef, deep thinker, and social visionary. 
I interviewed him at a live public event in Indianapolis. He is co-owner and chef of two celebrated New York restaurants that have a working farm and an educational center, the Stone Barn Center, at their heart. We've been talking about the pleasure orientation of the movement Dan Barber is part of, pursuing new ecologies and economies through taking pleasure in landscape and flavor. But as he just told me, this is not just about how we farm and shop. It's also about getting back to cooking. Do you have compassion for those of us who want to cook more, but have jobs and children and life feels hard enough as it is and food is one thing that you can buy in packages and bring home. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, you're not Maybe making not. me compassionate. You don't have much yeah, compassion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you know why? Because, like, because, because then you'd have to say, you know, because if I said to you that 25 years ago, you know, with all the, the time spent on TV, we're going to spend another four hours a day on average on the internet. And, and you would say, wow, I can't believe we'd find four hours in the day. And I said, not only are people gonna find four hours, but 95% penetration of internet use for four or 4.5 hours a day, wherever it's up to today, average. You would say, that's absolutely crazy. Nobody will spend that time, nobody has that time in the day. Well, we figured out how to do it. Uh, so the question comes down to priorities, is to what extent is, is cooking and eating and, and, and I know, all the rest of the things that are attached to that, uh, to what extent does that become a priority? And, and if it is a priority, you make the time. And, and it goes hand in hand with the, the amount of money you spend, because what we're talking about, and I don't want to skirt around it, I think it's a big issue, it's more expensive. Uh, there's no question about it. You're paying the real cost of, of growing food. Locally, it's usually more expensive. Uh, and so the question is, again, back to the internet example or, or cell phone use. 25 years ago, if I said there'd be a 95% penetration in cable television, you all would have said, that's nuts. We have free television. Who's gonna, <laughs> who is going to be able to find $125 a month extra? <laughs> And, and, and you all would have said, you all would have agreed with Krista, right? And I would have said, not only that, you're going to find another $125 for cell phone use in disposable income. Everyone is like, ah, $250 extra, and there's nobody has that money. Well, of course, we found it because we found it indispensable without those things. So can we excite this issue around food and pleasure to the extent that people feel the same way about dinner? Tell me what... I'm interested in this link between beauty and eating, and that it is actually has historically been a visual and communal as well as just a something about about taste, right? Yeah. So, when some when a someone is in your restaurant and the plate appears before them, what what does it look like? I mean, the the whole table, what visually, what? Okay, well, so so there are two parts to that question. The first is the whole table and the the experience mm-hmm. of the place. So. So I'm talking now about Blue Hill at Stone Barns, just outside of New York City that's on an old Rockefeller estate. So surrounding the restaurant is 80 acres of pastoral agriculture, iconic New England landscape that's 25 miles from Manhattan. Okay, so very relaxing, very beautiful, Rockefeller-inspired and and donated uh, land that's just absolutely unheard of in anywhere in the world, really. Uh, So so there's that beauty, and then you come closer into the beauty and you have my sister-in-law, my brother is my business partner in the restaurant, and my sister-in-law 
is the designer. And so she designs everything that you touch and feel and look at. And she's extraordinarily talented. And you sit down and, and I think at the table you, you become a part of this farm experience. Through elegance, there's white tablecloths and there's nice silverware, uh, but, she's, but she, she has a, a mindset and, a, and an approach to this that's quite lovely. So, okay, so I've set the scene. So now the, the food comes. And so, you know, on, on what we charge, and, and again, I don't want to shy away from this, we're a really expensive restaurant for sure. You're paying a lot of money for all of this bounty and, and style and beauty. And my plates, compared to what other chefs, now not compared to say the chicken pot pie that your children are eating tonight, and I'm not, I'm not demeaning the chicken pot pie, I'm saying my, my food would look more like your chicken pot pie than it would look like the high-end haute cuisine right. that's being played. And, and so the food is like not ornate. And it's, you know, it's not beautiful to, what's beauty? But a lot of people have the definition of beauty as being very constructed plates of food. So my plates of food generally are, are not deconstructed, but unconstructed. And they look, they tend to look uh, like I would imagine one of the farmers is standing over me, and often he is one of the two, and kind of laughing when a gratuitous garnish is placed or a stacking of something is placed that, that takes away from the work that they've done, because that's what it does. It takes time to do it. It takes your focus. The vectors come point at me, the chef, the, the stylist, and the creator, instead of the, the, the agriculture that produced it. But then the question is, like, what is, what is beautiful, beautiful for this? Yeah. And, and, and I would like to think the beauty in it is that it connects right to the farmer. And, but, you know, I don't want to say that to every, you know, it's hard. I'll go over the diner well, and say that. What do you do? Look, I, 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 <laughs> Sandy Sasso told me that the food she got was beautiful, and some writer, food writer, called coming to your restaurant like a, a spiritual journey. So I think it's beautiful. And I know my chicken pot pie was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think what you say also is that, um, that this is also an essential part of eating. It's, it's the ingredients. It's the presentation. It's, it's seeing this as something beautiful and blessed and to be honored. Yeah, I have the, the luxury. whole experience. Right, but I have the luxury uh, of, of working with my sister-in-law, I mentioned my brother, who's a brilliant businessman and, and can put all, help put all this together. And then, and then, you know, it's much easier to talk about these things on a canvas where there's agriculture surrounding everywhere you look. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you're in the middle of Midtown Manhattan, and I know this because I have another restaurant in the middle of Midtown Manhattan with my brother and sister-in-law, it's very hard to talk about these issues uh, because it's the way you feel when you sit down in the middle of the West Village and the tables are quite cramped and the, the, the energy is quite kinetic. And so you, you end up having a different experience. It's not bad as it's too very different experiences, but I think the agricultural connection, the beauty that you're talking about, mm -hmm. uh, is a lot easier to get across when you're in the middle of a farm. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with chef, thinker, Dan Barber, at a civic event held at Congregation Bethel Zedek in Indianapolis. The audience was also invited to submit questions. Okay, Rabbi Dennis Sasso is going to moderate questions. Rabbi, come from to the you. Bema. I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> this question came up um, uh, from several members of the audience, and I'll ask it from two different people because they're complementary. Is the idea of food that is carefully grown and prepared only for the well-off 
how do we nourish this way of thinking for a wider part of the population? And another question uh, along the same lines, how do you expand local healthy food systems to feed low-income inner-city people? Yeah. Uh, so the first question is, is this uh, a movement for the elites? And the answer is that uh, I sound often defensive when I answer this because I feel defensive. It, it has been a movement that's pretty much uh, started with people who can afford to pay for this kind of food. And do I think that's unfortunate? I really don't because you, uh, again, I looked to, you mentioned Michael Pollan's, who's on my mind now, but he, he often says that, that a lot of great movements in this country, including women's suffrage, including uh, the civil rights movement started with elites and, and ended up uh, becoming mass movements through powerful ideas. And there's nothing wrong with that. It takes a long time, especially in America, uh, generally, gener uh, generation. But, but those ideas can be quite powerful if they come in that sense from the, the top. The, 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 the sort of second and even connected to the first part of the question, moving forward, I, I expressed to you how uh, powerful, I, I feel like these ideas are for the future, and that this is really, we're at the start of something, not at the, the high point, we're at the start of something, mm -hmm. and, and that this is going to become a much more universal, American universal experience of, of wanting this kind of food. I think that way, uh, in part because I think the real cost of producing this cheap food is going to catch up to the agribusiness and conglomerates that are supporting our conventional for the food that we eat, mostly the 90%, the 80 to 90% that I'm talking about, the cost of bringing that to market is going to be too expensive in our generation and certainly, certainly by the time our children are our age. And, and by that I mean that, that to produce the food that we're, we're eating today, it's just too environmentally expensive. Here are two questions that I'm gonna tie together. Um, why aren't you a vegetarian? Have you made any connections between ethical food preparation and kosher food preparation? Yeah, okay. It's a great question. Jesus, a great question. I feel like I'm fifth set with Nadal here. But uh, I... I, uh, uh, the first question is about why aren't I a vegetarian? And why am I not standing up here and saying, you know, eat less meat? Uh, the answer is because I come from the lower Hudson Valley. Uh, New England. And my ecological conditions are dictating that we eat a lot of meat because we're grassland. Uh, what we grow best, besides those carrots, uh, <laughs> is an amazing diversity of healthful grass for animals. The grasslands, by the way, that built New England, um, that's built the dairy industry. They, there's no surprise that this is a conic landscape that I referenced with my grandmother that wasn't just about building beauty, that was about building what they were taking advantage of, which was cows grazing on great grass to produce great milk. Uh, that same ecology holds true today. There is these iconic open pasture lands I talked about produce the best tasting meat in the world. And so for me to be a vegetarian and, and be a strict advocate of it wouldn't be listening to the ecology that, that the land is telling us it, it wants to grow. Uh, so one of, the, one of the requirements of a chef, I think, for the future is not to uh, propose a cuisine on the landscape. It's going to have to be listening to the landscape to determine what kind of chef and what kind of eater we want to be. And if you're, if you're in southern uh, uh, Los Angeles uh, and San Diego and you want to be a vegetarian, God bless you. You should be. You should be. 
but if you want to be in, in New England and uh, you want to improve the ecological conditions of where you are, you're eating meat. There's no question about it. There is no healthy ecological system that I've ever seen that doesn't include animals. It just doesn't, because the manure from the animals is a, new, is, a, is a free ecological resource that amends the soil that gives you better tasting and healthful vegetables. That's been around since the beginning of time. So to, to say that vegetarians live on this higher plane of ethics, and I'm not here to, to argue that slaughtering animals doesn't carry with it some weight, but you have blood on your hands when you eat vegetarian as well, especially if you're in the Northeast, because your food's coming from somewhere. And your calories are coming from somewhere in the winter. And if they're traveling hundreds of miles, in many cases thousands of miles, uh, you are burning fossil fuels to get them there. And generally, they're produced in monocultures. And that has a huge cost on natural living systems. They might not be animals that you and I can identify with, but they're insects and bugs and whole types of flora and fauna that are dying to produce those vegetables. That's not uh, an ethical way to eat, I don't think, in the future. The kosher laws though, is a very interesting question because I've become fascinated by it. I, I have relationships with a relationship with a grain farmer in the Northeast who grows organically in a very diversified uh, a grain system named Klaus Martens. He's probably one of the more brilliant farmers I've ever met. And what he told me is that when he grows, uh, he, he has a big part of his business is growing um, uh, spelt for matzahs for Passover. Uh, and he's strict, uh, I think it's glat kosher, it's his kosher anyway. So he needs a rabbi at the farm when he's harvesting. The rabbi grabs hold of the combine and walks with him on the field. Uh, these grain farms are enormous, even in upstate New York. It's a lot like what you have here, thousands of acres. And a combine with a rabbi walking next to it has to go a lot slower than it would without, which generally makes kosher food, by the way, more expensive. That's one of the, one of the issues relating to kosher food. But what he realized that when the, when the rabbi would stop the combine, he would stop it because there was wild garlic in the field. Wild garlic in the field would make the matzah tray for, for Passover. So they have to go and pick out the wild garlic. And so he started researching both kosher law to realize what, what was it about? Why, why, why is wild garlic, it's in the field, it's natural. Why is that considered treif? And what he discovered was that, from a chemical point, biological point of view, wild garlic was an example of low sulfur content in his soil. He had an imbalance in his soil. Mm. And when he corrected the balance, by the way, by manure, by, by taking extra runs of his cattle through the spelt field, he corrected the imbalance and got rid of the wild garlic. And he made more money because he could go faster on the combine with the, with the <laughs> rabbi. And the quality of his grain was improved dramatically. Now he's given me many examples, I think that's a really good one, of kosher laws that seemingly have no reason to them. But of course, if you research them and think about it, they have to be grounded in, in agriculture, in, in the proper agriculture uh, that produces the best food and the best nutrition. This is chef and social visionary Dan Barber. I'm Krista Tippett. Rabbi Dennis Sasso is moderating questions from the audience. Uh, tell us how we can prepare ourselves to come to the table and uh, get, enjoy the experience optimally. And a, a related question, does food taste better when made with love? My hypothesis is that yes, it does taste better. 
Have you ever come across any evidence that would be able to support this theory? <laughs> well, again, I go back to some of the same themes as just like producing food that's delicious that ends up uh, getting you to the table, uh, whether you're in the right frame of mind or not, because you're after the good, good food. Uh, and then I guess the second part of it is, uh, uh, what was the second part? I'm sorry. Food with love. Food with love. Food with love. <laughs> I'm a very like angry cook in my kitchen, so I'm not the right like Are I, you? I, I yeah I yell a lot. It took us all this time to get to that. Yeah, well, it's only because we have a minute left. <laughs> <laughs> get to the truth. Yeah, I mean, I, I like I yell a lot, and I I'm very um, very disciplining with with the cooks, uh, and a little bit abusive. I mean, I'm nothing like what I trained under, uh, nothing. But and it's never physical, but but the mental is like sometimes really really. Uh, Pointed. And so, so why am I saying, why am I doing another confessional? Uh, because I don't know that there really is this connection between the love and the happiness and smiling and, and cooking, and does that actually make the food taste better? Uh, I hope not, because I'm really in trouble. <laughs> we, we could call it passion instead yeah, passion, of anger. Right. Okay, so we, we've really, I think, mined your wisdom tonight. Um, is there something that you're newly passionate about? Is there some emerging chapter of this story that Michael Pollan hasn't yet written a book yes. about? Yes, 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 tell us. There's two things, really quick. The first is that I think one of the things that's been overlooked in this, this issue that we've been talking about is breeders. Uh, and I'm not talking about uh, bioengineering, uh, genetically modifying seeds. I'm talking about old school breeders. And Cornell, they're like the hippies that came in the 70s that are there and have seeds literally in their, their desk drawers that and we've been growing now unnamed varieties of tomatoes, unnamed varieties of onions, unnamed varieties of squashes that have been sitting for years in the desks of these breeders. So these breeders, and they are largely retiring, at least at Cornell, are the ones who have a vault of, literally a vault of information uh, that I think is going to be so important as we transition away from the conventional mindset of agriculture and into this more regional uh, uh, look at agriculture, which is going to rely on these, these seeds that can withstand the challenges of growing locally so, and in a diverse system. So that, I'm really excited about that. I'm working with Jack Algier with a lot of these breeders and trying to get them to stay on and, and work more with us. And what they say to me over and over again is no one's ever asked me about flavor. Hmm. I hear it every time from the breeders. I was like, I was like clockwork. It's so weird. No one asks me about flavor. They always ask me about yield and about disease resistance. They're just like, all we have to do is select for flavor. And then the second is just the most exciting uh, introduction I had to uh, to uh, Dr. William Lee, who's uh, the head of the Angiogenesis Foundation in, in Boston and in Cambridge. And he's working on uh, researching capillary growths that feed tumors. Uh, not the tumor themselves, but the blood supply that feeds the tumors. So why is that of interest to me? It's of interest to me because Dr. Lee's approach is to target foods that are high in anti-angiogenetic properties uh, that literally shrink tumors. Hmm. Uh, when I saw and heard Dr. Lee speak, I, I felt so moved about what he was talking about. It made so much sense, food and cancer and food and this idea that if we eat right, we can actually eat well and starve cancer. 
what I did when I met him, and I, I had thought, for sure he had thought of this, but I said, all these foods he's identified as being high in anti-angiogenetic properties like parsnips and grapes uh, and certain teas. Uh, I said, have you ever studied how those parsnips and grapes are grown? In other words, is a parsnip just a parsnip or a parsnip grown in the right kind of soil with the right kind of amendments? And he looked at me and he said, we've never done those studies. So what we're embarking on very slowly is taking ingredients from Stone Bar and sending it to him and getting a read mm -hmm. with those BRICS levels. Because again, my own personal wacky theory is that this, this, this high BRICS level is gonna to correspond to high nutrient density, which is gonna to correspond to, to the kinds of foods that will shrink uh, capillary growth to tumors. And, and he believes it, uh, and he's a foodie. And so we're gonna have a lot of fun, I think, trying to identify these foods that are grown in the right way, giving you 13.8% BRICS level. Does that correspond with cancer-fighting properties? And his theory, and, and mine for what it's worth to you, uh, is, is that there's a large correlation. So I'm really excited to pursue that. And, and I think we'll see more of that uh, as we move on with this movement. It's a great place to end, that correlation again, that's yeah. run all the way through this between what is life-giving and pleasurable and sustainable. That's right. And I really want to thank you for making that equation come to life oh, in your work and for you. us tonight. Thank yeah. you, Krista. Dan Barber is co-owner and executive chef of two restaurants, Blue Hill, New York, and Blue Hill at Stone Barns. His new book is well worth a read. It's called The Third Plate, Field Notes on the Future of Food. There was a lot in my live, unedited encounter on stage with Dan Barber that I wish we could have fit into this broadcast. Like his life-changing encounter with an apricot when he was an apprentice chef in France, and his fresh and informed perspective on why farmers markets and home gardens are only a small slice of the new regional food economies we need. You can watch the video of that full conversation and take a visual taste of a nine-course Dan Barber meal through the eyes of a photographer at onbeing.org. And don't forget that we now have a free On Being app. For iPhone and iPad users, go to the iTunes Store. For Android users, download the mobile app in the Google Play Store. And please let us know what you think as we develop the next version. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Chris Jones, and Julie Raw. Special thanks this week to the Spirit and Place Festival of Indianapolis and Congregation Beth Elzedek, especially Rabbi Sandy Sasso, Rabbi Dennis Sasso, and Sherry Lip Levine. On Being is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org, and by Calliopeia Foundation, contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation.
On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.